How many of you have ever struggled with doubt when it comes to your salvation? Oh, I saw hands pop up quick. You ever ask the question, how can I be sure that I'm saved? How can I know that I know that I know that I know I'm saved? Had people ask me that question, I've met tons of people who struggle with assurance and not just with those who are spiritually immature. I've met people more godly than me with questions and doubt, which throws some red flags up my way, right? Then I've met some on the flip side who need to be questioning and are not. What about you? Ever question, ever struggle? With doubt, how many of y'all have been doubting a, a little bit more recently since studying through the book of Jude and the book of Hebrews? Some of you, yeah? We talked a lot about apostasy within the church. In uh, the book of Jude and in Hebrews, we have encountered many warning passages. For example, in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who are struggling in their walk with Christ and drifting spiritually, and he writes to them and warns them about the punishment for those who neglect such a great salvation. He gives warnings all throughout Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews 3, 6, he says, And we are God's house. We are his people. If, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Verse 14 of Hebrews 3 says, For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm till the end. So, so we have come to share in Christ. We're in Christ if we continue, if we persevere. In verses 7 through 15, the writer of Hebrews uses Old Testament Israel as an example and reminds his readers of how they perished in the wilderness and did not enter into God's rest because of their unbelief. He addresses this issue of their calloused and unbelieving heart. And he calls for those in his audience to learn from their mistakes. He calls for them to not harden their hearts, not go astray in their heart, to not have an unbelieving heart and be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The first part of Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews calls for the Jewish Christians in his audience to be fearful of not entering God's rest so that they do not fail to reach it. He calls for them to question and examine themselves spiritually. And at the end of chapter 4, though the writer of Hebrews assures his readers that there is a Sabbath rest for God's people, for those in Christ, he also gives another warning for the pretenders. He makes it clear that God, through his word, exposes our true thoughts and the true intentions of our heart. He says no creature is hidden from God's sight. We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, we must not be pretenders because God's word exposes who we truly are. That's another warning. We encounter yet another in Hebrews 6, a big one. We looked at this one the last time we were in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians who are spiritually sluggish. And he writes 
and he warns them about apostasy. And he warns his readers of those who are with God's people, but not of God's people who fall away. And we talked about the fact that though the writer gives words of assurance throughout this book and writes these things so that these Jewish Christians who are drifting will examine themselves and see their need of Christ and get back on track and busy living for God and will keep trusting and keep believing in him continue to grow in godliness so that they'll have assurance though he's writing for those reasons let's be honest these warning pastures they can shake us up a bit can't they we read too many of these passages we might begin to really think and it may force us to ask the question of whether or not god wants us to have assurance at all when it comes to our salvation or are we just sort to are we just to sort of live out our christian lives constantly doubting and questioning where we stand with god well we learn in scripture god does not want us to live in that way in fact he goes out of his way to give us assurance something we have seen continue to see in this book as though our God wants us to examine ourselves by his word and continue to see where we fall short and wants us to see our need of Christ's righteousness and God's grace to grow us and guide us. God also wants us, believers, to have assurance. We saw that in our text we looked at last time. After giving one of the greatest warnings in scripture the writer of hebrews ends that passage with a great word of assurance he says in verse 9 of hebrews 6 look at it though we speak in this way yet in your case beloved we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation so after giving this great warning he gives his audience great assurance he calls them beloved and he says we are sure you're in the faithful group I'm sure you're in the faithful group he, he gives them great assurance he looks at their faith and he highlights the fruit in their life and he has assurance that he gives them assurance of their own salvation he's been giving them hefty warnings now he comes with great assurance and he continues with this throughout the rest of chapter 6 and get this the way the author of Hebrews gives assurance at the end of Hebrews 6 is by focusing in on the great character of God and his great promises he makes and keeps and the great work that he has accomplished for us by sending his son Jesus. That's the way he gives assurance. It's one of the great passages on assurance in the Bible. We learn in this passage, God wants us to know, believers, that we are safe and secure in his love. We're trusting in Christ alone for salvation. He wants us, doesn't want us to wonder through this life with thoughts of, you know, does God love me? Does he not? Am I secure? Am I not? God doesn't want us to live in this way. He knows we are this way, that we struggle with doubt when it comes to our salvation. And so he, in his kindness, gives us the assurance we need. Now, why do we struggle with doubt? Well, one reason is because, of course, we're a fallen people who live in a fallen world, right? 
Though we have been saved believers, changed from the inside out, we are not what we will one day be when Christ returns. We still struggle in this life, and at times that struggle leads to doubt. At times our sanctification can be painfully slow. That causes us to doubt. Our circumstances can also cause us to doubt as well. We have to endure some dark, difficult storms in this life which can cause us to doubt. It causes us to question God in His hand in our lives. When we get sick, we lose a job, struggle financially, marriage falls apart, we lose loved ones, we at times are left wondering if God's really got this, if God's got us and whether or not He cares and whether or not He's at work in our lives. At times, the sheer weariness of those experiences wears us down and causes us to doubt. And God knows this about us. And because He loves us and cares for us, He helps us in these times of doubt. But get this. It's important for you to remember. He doesn't always help us by changing our circumstances now we know he works in the midst of the mess of our circumstances, in the midst of the trials of our life, to grow us in godliness, but he does not always remove our trials and bring us out of the storm we are in immediately, though we ask him to repeatedly. Instead, he gives us assurance regardless of our circumstances by reminding us of who he is and the promises he has made and the redemptive work that he has done and will continue to do for us at times that's all he gives us but that's all we need and that brings with it to us great assurance in this passage we're going to look at this morning and next week the author is going to show us that there are three things we're going to see in the next two weeks. We're going to get to two today. We're going to really focus in the last two verses, the best part of the passage next week. So you got that to look forward to. But this part's good as well. We're going to look at this passage, and we're going to see what God does and how that brings us assurance in our salvation. In this text, we see number one, that God provides assurance by pledging an oath to his people. Look at verses 13 and 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Notice here, the author is taking us back once again to the Old Testament. Makes sense, right? He's got a Jewish Christian audience. He continues to go back to the Old Testament. This time he takes them all the way back to Genesis 22 to remind his readers of the promise that God made to Abraham. Now, for those of y'all familiar with the story, you know that God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and through this nation, I'm going to make out of you, all nations are going to be blessed. And he didn't just make that promise once. 
He made it over and over again. He repeats it to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. And each time God makes this promise, he gives the same promise, but get this, he adds something to the promise that helps Abraham believe it. Genesis 12, he makes the promise for the first time. In Genesis 15, God makes the promise and adds to it an unconditional covenant. And he makes to Abraham to show him that he's going to keep in his word and fulfill that promise. In Genesis 17, he gives circumcision as the great sign of that covenant promise. And in Genesis 22, God swears, he makes an oath on his name that he is going to keep this promise. Now, you remember what significant event happened in Genesis 22? Remember that's when God called for Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. And that's the event that the writer of Hebrews is focused in on in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. Now, let's think about this for just a minute. Let's be honest. That's an odd thing for God to ask someone to do, right? Tell someone to do. And that's an understatement. I thought we said that God is giving assurance to Abraham by bringing up this, this promise and this covenant over and over again. If that's the case, if he's trying to give assurance to Abraham, why would Abraham sacrificing his only son provide him with the assurance that God's going to keep his promise? It's a pretty good question, isn't it? Let's talk about it. Think about the scene. Abraham has been waiting decades to have a son. It took a while after he was promised that he was going to have a son tried to take matters into his own hands with another woman, but God was clear that he and Sarah were going to have the child of promise. Well, decades pass, it finally happens. They have a son, Isaac. Abraham is 100, his wife Sarah is 90. When Isaac's a little older but still a boy, God tells Abraham to take Isaac to a mountain in the land of Moriah to sacrifice him. Now think about that. How would you respond? Abraham's over 100, not very many more years in his life. His wife is not far behind him. God has made this promise that Abraham is going to be the father of a nation of people, and he has Isaac. God says, I want you to sacrifice him. How would you respond? We're told Abraham responds in faith. He waited patiently for the most part on the Lord and he trusted the Lord in this situation remember when they got to the place for sacrifice remember what Isaac asks him he said my father behold the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for a burnt offering Abraham said God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son that's faith that's faith in Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews says that Abraham believed if he would have sacrificed his son, that God would have raised him up from the dead. That's faith. It's incredible faith. Now let's pause for a moment and let's think about the earlier example from Hebrews. Remember the writer of Hebrews gave them the example of the unbelieving Jews who perished in the wilderness they did not enter God's rest, we're told, as a result of their unbelief. Yet they had witnessed God deliver them by sending plagues in Egypt and parting the Red Sea. He supernaturally led them out, and when they get out, they were fed from God's hand. 
manna from heaven. They drank from the rock, water from the rock in the wilderness. They saw amazing things, yet they did not believe. They rejected God and his leaders. They turned their hearts back toward those who had enslaved them in Egypt. Abraham here, in contrast to these guys, over 100 years old, told to sacrifice his only son, the son of promise, and he does not hesitate. What a great example. So Abraham binds Isaac. He lays him on the altar, lifts up his knife, and God, in the form of an angel, appears and he says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And we're told at that moment, Abraham lifted up his eyes, looked. There was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. God provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac and Abraham sacrificed the ram instead. And it's on the heels of this ram being substituted for Isaac that God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. There it is again. Now, there are a lot of things going on in this story. You could camp out on the fact that a sacrifice had to be made and it was going to be Isaac, but God provided a substitute. That's a picture of what Jesus has done for us, right? You could focus on the fact that Abraham did not spare his only son to accomplish the Father's will and God did not spare his only son to accomplish his own will. It's, all of that's there, right? But get this. The writer of Hebrews is sharing this story to show that God's promises hold in the bleakest of circumstances. That's what he's showing. Let me say that again. The writer of Hebrews is showing here, through this example, that God's promises hold in the bleakest of circumstances. Abraham is told by God that he is to sacrifice his son. That's dark, and it's in the midst of this dark trial that God provides a substitute, and then he reiterates this great promise. Boy, what a great reminder to us believers that should bring us great assurance. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? No matter what we go through in this life, listen, believers, no matter how dark things get, God's promises remain the circumstances in this life never negate the promises God makes never he reminds us of that over and over again in his word and notice what he says again the writer of Hebrews reminds us God swore by himself to Abraham saying surely I will bless you and multiply you now let's pause for a minute let's be honest that's a bit strange that God swears an oath to Abraham. I mean, think about it. Why do human beings swear oaths? Why do we place our hand on the Bible before we testify in a court of law? Because we're untrustworthy, right? We are. We're forced to take oaths because we lie. God doesn't lie. So why does he swear? Get this. 
He doesn't do it because his word is weak. He does it because our faith is weak. That's why God swears by oaths, because our faith is weak. He doesn't swear to Abraham because he's prone to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. We're going to learn that in just a moment. God swears because Abraham's faith is weak. Now, if that's true of Abraham, how much more so is that true of us? I mean, think about what we just talked about with Abraham. I mean, we've been reminded of the fact that Abraham's faith compared to ours was strong, a lot stronger than ours. But his faith was still lacking, and so God stands up on the witness stand for Abraham, and he makes an oath to him to bless him and to multiply him, and he does it so that he will have full assurance that God is going to do what he says, that he's going to keep his promises. Listen, believers, what God says and does for Abraham here is important for us. You know why? Because Paul tells us, Galatians 3, you and I, we are heirs of the promises that God made to Abraham. We have been grafted in, believers. This oath that God makes to Abraham to make this great nation and bless all of the nations, it extends to us. It extends to the physical descendants who come after Abraham, but also to us, spiritual descendants of Abraham. Those who have been grafted in to the family of faith. That's us believers by God's grace through our faith alone in Christ alone. And think about this church. This is awesome. We get to witness firsthand today this promise being fulfilled. We get to witness God keep this oath honor this oath we get to witness the nations being blessed through the person and work of god's messiah abraham's son the lord jesus christ every time a family or friend in this church gives his or her life to jesus christ every time someone comes forward to make it public that they're trusting in christ alone for their salvation by passing through the waters of baptism we're watching god keep this oath that he made to abraham believers have you been blessed through the person and work of the lord jesus christ hopefully you can say alongside me that seeing God keep this oath in my own life. I've been blessed through what Christ has done. I pray you have as well. So the oath God swore to Abraham, he swore to you and me. And he did not make this oath once again because his word is weak. He did it because our faith is weak. He was so concerned with us believing in his promise and having assurance of our right standing with him through the son of Abraham, his great Messiah, the Lord Jesus. He was so concerned with us having a hope that could not be taken away in the midst of difficulties we face that he swore an oath to you and to me. The author of Hebrews is reminding us of that to show us how much God wants us to have assurance, believers. He also tells us, in addition to taking an oath, God gives assurance in swearing by his name. That's big. Look at the end of verse 13 again, in verse 16 and 17. He says, since God had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, that's us believers, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. We said earlier that we as humans swear by oaths because we lie. We're not always truthful, right? The reason we put our hand on a Bible in a courtroom setting is because we have a tendency, a lot of us, to be less than truthful when we think it's in our best interest to do so. And notice we don't swear by ourselves, right? I don't say, so help me Graham. But to one higher than ourselves. We say, so help me God. Why? We place ourselves under a higher accountability to tell the truth. That's what we're doing. And when we do that, what we say should carry more weight unless we're extremely dishonest and everybody knows it. Well, we said in the previous point that God does not have an issue with being truthful. We are told His very word is truth. The truth is whatever God says, and whatever God says is the truth. We're going to see in verse 18, it's impossible for God to lie. So he doesn't take an oath, once again, because his word is weak, but because of our faith. Our faith is weak. God knows it is a struggle for us to believe in his promises. So in addition to giving us promises, he swears by these promises. He knows we're prone to wonder. He knows we're prone to doubt. He knows that at times our feelings and our circumstances dictate how we view him, how we think about him, which is why he relocates our hope and our trust away from ourselves, away from our circumstances, and onto his word. Here's what Ligon Duncan had to say about it. I love this. Look at this. He says, God, by giving us this promise and oath, is lifting up our hope out of the shifting sands of circumstance and is plopping it right down in the middle of something that will not change, namely, his word. Very, very true. He did that with Abraham over and over again. He said, Abraham, I know you and your wife are old. I know you have doubts. I know you have questions, but you guys are going to have a child. This child of promise. Through this child are going to come children. Through these children are going to come a nation. We're going to bless all other nations. And he gives him this promise in Genesis 12. He makes a covenant with him in Genesis 15. He gives a covenant sign in Genesis 17. Then he swears an oath to Abraham after providing a substitute for Abraham's child of promise, Isaac, in Genesis 22. Through the promise he made, The covenant he established and the oath God swore to Abraham. God shows Abraham, do not put your hope in yourself or in your circumstances. Put it in me. Put it in my promise. Put it in my covenant. Put it in my oath that I swear to you. Folks, when God makes an oath, who does he swear by? Verse 13, verse 16, and 17, by himself, right? Remember, we swear by a name of authority higher than ourselves. There is no authority higher than God, so God swears by his own name. Makes sense. He pledges himself in this oath, which makes it seem even more secure, though when he promises it's as good as done, right? But he pledges this oath for our benefit 
in his name to bring us an even greater assurance. He commits himself in this oath, in this pledge to Abraham and to us, the heirs of the promise. So the writer of Hebrews is using this Old Testament example to make New Testament application. He is giving this example of how God has dealt faithfully with Abraham in the past so that the Jewish Christians in his audience and us, his greater Christian audience, will trust him in the present. That's why he's writing this. He says in verse 17, the reason we have this story of Abraham is because God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, us again, believers, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. The writer of Hebrews is saying that Abraham's story is meant to give us assurance, believers. It's meant to remind us that God's promises can be trusted. Amen? His character is not changed. Amen? His purposes remain. Amen? Just as he kept his promise and did not break his oath to Abraham, he will deal with us in the same way. We can have assurance because of God's character, because of who he is, because of the promises he has made, the covenants he has established, and the oaths that he takes. Look at verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things. Now, what are those two unchangeable things? Well, context helps us here. It's his promise and his oath. So that by these two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, believers. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He's saying here, because God has made a promise and sealed that promise with an oath, because he has done that, because of his great character, because his word is truth, because it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to him, who have run to him, who are looking to Christ alone and trusting in him alone for salvation, we should be encouraged we should have great confidence, wonderful assurance, and should be encouraged to hold fast to the hope we have in this promise made to Abraham that's been fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's to be our response. Are you struggling this morning when it comes to assurance of salvation? Let me first ask you this, believers. Where's your focus? Is it on yourself and your circumstances or upon God and his word? If you're struggling in this area, you need to spend some time camping out in here. Communing with God in His Word. You need to spend a great deal of time studying about the great character of God from His Word and about how He is a good and loving and gracious and caring and unchanging and truthful God. And His Therefore, trustworthy, and you need to spend time focusing in on the promises that he has made, the covenants he has established, the oaths that he has pledged, and you need to, in turn, trust in and cling to those promises. Not drift spiritually, but stay grounded with God. Hold fast to the hope that was promised to Abraham that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's to be our response. 
We're going to have to stop there this morning. I'm stopping before the two best verses in the passage. We're going to camp out there next week. We're going to learn how Christ brings us assurance by anchoring believers within the heavenly veil in the heavenly holy of holies. Our hope is anchored, it says there. How great are those words? They were drifting, but believers were anchored within the heavenly veil, within the heavenly holy of holies in Christ Jesus. That's where our hope is. Great assurance, great assurance. We're going to talk about that next week. Before we dismiss, let me end by saying this. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have assurance of salvation for good reason. Maybe you're here and you have not experienced this blessing that we've been talking about, the blessing promised to Abraham, this blessing that God swore to him in Genesis 12 and, and 15 and 17 and 22. And the reason why is because you're not looking to and trusting in the fulfillment of that promise, the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that he is the one who was sent by God to fulfill that promise. He is the one who came to bless all the nations. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Jesus, God's son, fulfilled this promise by coming down to us from heaven to earth, not only to bless Jews, but all nations. He came to make a way for sinners like you and me to be forgiven of sin and made right with God through faith alone in Him alone. He came to provide salvation for all who believe. He came from heaven to earth. Jesus did, took on flesh, lived the perfect life for us, and laid His perfect life down only to take it back up again three days later. And now He has taken His rightful place at the right hand of the Father on high, and He is there ready to save. If you would simply See your need of him, confess your sin, look to him and trust in him alone for salvation. I pray if you're here this morning, you're doubting your salvation for good reason. Because Christ is not the Lord of your life. Today be the day you forsake your sin, turn from going at life on your own and give your life up and over to King Jesus and be saved. I pray that that happened today. Let's pray.